This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. Every year at the Sydney Opera House, we hold a massive festival called All About Women. It's a bit like Feminist Christmas. And in 2018, we wanted to open up conversations about feminism that went beyond the gender binary to create a truly inclusive festival for everyone who wants to challenge patriarchal structures. In a panel called Trans Like Me, English writer and musician C.N. Lester, local broadcaster and musician Eddie Ayres, and comedy legend Jordan Raskopoulos came together to look at how trans politics intersects with feminism. This session is chaired by the head of Transgender Victoria, Sally Goldner. We very, very much start by acknowledging the original inhabitants on whose land we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I think on this weekend I would also like to acknowledge our sister girls and brother boys who are part of our original inhabitants and acknowledge their unique contributions to diversity on and around the lands. I'm Sally Goldner, I'm your chair, facilitator, or if I'm not a chair, I can be furniture diverse and be (laughs) a a table. (laughs) And we have got a fabulous um, panel sampling the the spectrum of gender, and we're going to tackle the topic about inclusivity of feminism and trans, and we're not going to waste any time, just the briefest of intros first, and then we're going to dive in. Um, first to my far right, um, all the way from England and recovered from jet lag, <laughs> the fabulous C.N. Lester. Give them a welcome. From not so far away in Brisbane, um, no jet lag, oh, one hour's jet lag anyway with daylight savings. Um, the man who's, gosh, but, He's a bit like the international Leyland. He's been everywhere, and that's Eddie Ayres. And while not having to travel a lot of distance from Oxford Street last night, <laughs> the glitter's still there. Um, Sydney's own Jordan Raskopoulos. And, yeah, I'm Sally Goldner from Melbourne, hence why I'm wearing lots of inner Melbourne, so that's why I'm wearing lots of black, but with a bit of colour. <laughs> Let's dive into the topic. Um, no wasted time. CN, um, throw it to you first for your thoughts. Okay. Uh, well, I made some notes, uh, because I figured if I didn't make some notes, I would just keep talking and talking and talking, because jet lag plus extreme enthusiasm for the topic is kind of a dangerous mix. Uh, so I promise, I think we've got, is it five minutes to start with? Six times. Six minutes. So okay, so in six minutes, I'm going to try and give like a little whistle-stop tour of trans feminism, uh, and then a little bit of a talk about how we can move forward into a more trans-inclusive future through sort of multiple kinds of feminism rather than one type. Um, so it's kind of not news to any trans people that we've been around for a very long time and even this kind of modern trans movement itself is about 140 years old Um, but it's often news to people outside of trans communities who 
have had a very truncated idea of what it is to be trans, and very much that kind of emerged in the 1960s and 70s, and it's still a very new thing, uh, particularly for someone like me who is genderqueer. Other people may be sort of agender or bigender or non-binary genders. Um, you know, kind of like we appeared yesterday and a bit of a sort of trendy fashion uh, fad. Um, and the idea that feminism is a monolith over here, and trans people are over here, and why should feminism have to incorporate trans people when we're so new and strange and different? So hopefully you know that's bullshit, but if you don't, <laughs> here is a very brief little tour. Um, so we were talking last night about this incredible person called Carl M. Baer, and Carl M. Baer had been a suffragette. He had worked um, for women's education, women's suffrage rights, uh, the rights of women who were being trafficked in Eastern Europe, um, the rights of Jewish people who were being suppressed by fascist elements in Germany, and he was doing this in the 1900s. And he transitioned... Uh, to be his sort of true self, to be recognized as a man in 1905-1906. Carl M. Bayer wrote uh, a journal, a sort of a memoir called uh, Memories of a Man's Girlhood, which he wrote with Magnus Hirschfeld, um, in which he talked about this incredibly sort of intersectional experience that he had. After he transitioned, he continued to work for Jewish causes. Uh, in the 1930s, he was eventually arrested and tortured by the Nazis before escaping uh, to Palestine, and so later they became Israel, uh, where he died in obscurity. And he is a pioneer, but he's just one of many, many people who were working at these intersections of women's rights, rights for gendered and sexual minorities, rights of sort of cultural minorities um, throughout Europe in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so I found it very interesting when we say, how can we make feminism trans inclusive? It's been trans-inclusive in certain parts from the get-go. Another person I'd love to talk about is a friend of mine from the UK. Uh, if you were in sci-fi or fantasy writing, you might know her. Her name is Roz Caveney. Um, Roz is... She is the London, like, grand dam of trans communities. She is everyone's amazing auntie, and she, she does so much incredible work. But she's been working as a lesbian feminist, again, since the 1970s and 80s. She has worked for women asylum seekers. She's worked for women's reproductive rights. She's worked for the rights of trans people, queer people, women of all kinds to stand up against patriarchy. And she's done it in this incredibly subversive and fun, sexy way. Um, and I look at my own communities throughout the UK, and the work we're doing is deeply feminist at its core. And again, we get told, oh, but is there space in feminism for you? It's like, what do you think we're doing? <laughs> you know, we don't need your permission to be doing this. The, our feminism is already in practice, and it's practice which is trying to extend healthcare to people who face institutional barriers. It's feminism which is trying to grapple with economic injustice and racial injustice. Trans people come from every single background, so our trans feminisms must include every single type of misogyny that happens. And I think, sort of moving on from that, looking back to my notes mm -hmm. uh, that I scribbled in a sort of jet lag-induced haze, when this sort of minority of feminism, which is transphobic, gets given the stage, it always really interests me just how narrow it is 
and just the way it treats feminism as this kind of clubhouse, right? It's not just trans people, it's all kinds of people are found wanting. Like you're either in the clubhouse and you're a good feminist, or you're outside of the clubhouse and you're bad. And rather than having feminism as a closed club, something that you are, I want to see feminism which is something that you do. And something that you do means it is for everybody because feminism becomes not uh, a closed space, but a toolbox, and in that toolbox are tools that everyone can use and everyone can contribute to. It realizes that we are coming at things from a different angle, we have different battles to fight, but that we can all contribute because what is our goal? Our goal is to dismantle the patriarchy, right? It's to completely pull down this oppressive system and build something better, something which has liberation, it has celebration, it has diversity and hope and wonder at its core, and we can't do that Audrey Lord is going to be quoted throughout the day, and for good reason. We cannot do that if the tools we're using are the ones that we got given by the patriarchy. If those tools are hatred, discord, bullying, abuse, that's not feminism to me. But a feminism which has multi-directional learning, which acknowledges different systems of power, which listens, which is empathetic and compassionate, and strong by being vulnerable and strong by being open, that is a feminism which I believe in, and I think that is the kind of trans-inclusive feminism which people are already living and doing. Uh, and frankly, I don't want to give any oxygen to the other types because I think this is a better way of building a better world for everybody. So that is... Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Let's make it a big clubhouse for everyone, <laughs> yeah. everyone in who wants to... Um, in the words of Picasso, every act of creation is first an act of destruction. Let's paint something mm. that's better than what we have. Yeah. Mm. And let's use all forms of art. As I turn to someone with a musical background, Eddie, your Ooh. thoughts. Nice segue, Sally. <laughs> Sally's um, segue over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thank you all so much for coming. It's great to see so many people who are interested in this subject. Uh, so my name's Eddie Ayres, and um, I'm, as, as Ian was uh, gave a, a sort of very specific little talk. I just thought I'd talk more about what it is to go through the world for 49 years in a female body and now for the last couple of years in a male body and I guess my experiences mm. of those two things and how shockingly diff uh, different it is. So um, in terms of feminism, I grew up... Um, in a family in England, my mother was divorced in 1969, and I'm the youngest of four. Mum had a very, very bitter attitude towards men, and the reason for that I've only just found out is that my dad forced a divorce onto my mum with four children. He was having an affair with the woman next door, literally, and um, he basically blackmailed mum to say that if she didn't grant him a divorce, he would accuse her of cruelty towards the children and take us all off her so that she would never see us again. So, of course, she didn't have any choice. And so I grew up in a household with all women except for essentially me and my brother. My grandfather died when I was pretty young and my uh, dad just wasn't there and I saw him once a year. Now, the wonderful thing about that is that I was taught that girls can do absolutely everything that boys can do. And my mum was a very, very strong feminist. The negative side of that was that all men are bastards. 
<laughs> and as we know, that's really not the case. Um, you know, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some men are bars, 50-50. Um, so uh, because I was born in 67 and, you know, growing up um, through the 70s, early 80s, um, I got to puberty, started to look at girls and thinking, oh, wow, I really fancy them. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't have amazing people like CN around to explain to me what was happening in my brain, I thought, well, I'm a lesbian. And um, that's what I thought for many, many, many years until I got to my 30s and started to find out more about transgender uh, men. And I began to think, I began to get very interested in transgender stuff. And then I spent this year traveling by bicycle from England to Hong Kong. And um, along the way, I was cycling the length of Pakistan And I was dressed in men's clothes, and everybody thought that I was a bloke. And I would introduce myself as Emma, my female name. And uh, people heard what they wanted to hear, and what they wanted to hear was a man. And so they immediately, in their head, changed my name from Emma to Emmett. And so basically, I transitioned in Pakistan. It was a very (laughs) surprising place to transition, but I was taken into the men's side of houses. The only people who thought that something was up was, of course... The women, because as we all know, women are much more observant than men, and they really know what's going on. Um, And so the women would look at me, you know, a little bit strangely, and the men would be giving me hugs, and I'd be trying to go like this to hide the fact that I had breasts. And you know, it was was kind of it was a it was a dangerous time in many ways, but also a wonderful time. And then I think, as uh, probably a number of trans guys will attest, my life changed when I saw the film *Boys Don't Cry* which is about Brandon Tina, um, a trans man who was raped and murdered in small-town America. So it was at that moment that I realized I was transgender, and it wasn't like, yay, I'm transgender, fantastic. It was, oh, fuck, I'm transgender. How on earth am I going to deal with this? I was in my early 30s. This was a nightmare, and what would my mum say? So I uh, have... uh, been in a a number of uh, lesbian relationships. I um, confessed to my partner at the time, and she was very negative about it, and she said, well, I'll always be on the fringes of society. Um, Another partner said the same thing, and of course, you know, we all want to be loved, don't we? And so I chose love over, I guess, Mm self-love, and so I suppressed my transgenderism for Many years for love, but also very much for the sake of feminism. You know, I'm such a strong believer in women can be everything. And so why actually can't I kind of make my life work in a female body? But eventually, you, you just can't do it. You can't suppress being transgender. And um, for those of you who, who are not transgender, and to just try and explain the sort of feeling that it's like, you know that very sort of thick paned glass that you get in bathrooms sometimes? That's like bricks, but it's actually glass. And you can kind of see the light and the shapes moving outside, but you can't see anything distinctly. Well, it was like I was surrounded in my life by that glass. And I could see males on the other side, and I desperately, desperately wanted to get over to the other side. And I simply could not change over to the other side. And the final straw was uh, moving to Afghanistan. And 
from coming from a, a, a wonderfully open, well, you know, relatively open, androgynous available society here in Australia, where I could kind of carve a way down the middle, um, I went to this very binary society in Afghanistan, and it was so clear that I was on completely the wrong side. So um, thanks to my wonderful partner, Charlie, she put me in touch with doctors in Brisbane, Dr. Gail Behrman, and my surgeon, Dr. Elise Saylor, and they fixed me up. And so I, I started to take testosterone nearly two years ago and had chest surgery, left Afghanistan, and made my way into the world of men. Um, I think a really clear way of... Uh, showing the thing about being in a woman's world and being in a man's world is women so happily chat to each other. Mm. And when I was female-bodied, I could go through the world. And, you know, I'm a pretty chatty, pretty open person. And, you know, just somebody who I don't know. I just, if I was sitting next to them on a plane, I'd go, where are you going? You know, what are you up to? And now that I present as male, I can't do that anymore. Um, I was having a pair of trousers taken up because I've got short legs. And um, I was at the, um, the shop where they take them up. This wonderful woman was serving me and just sort of had a moment to wait. So I said, so what are you doing on the weekend? And she immediately said, oh, I'm going to a barbecue with my husband. Mm. So she was, you know, she just immediately thought that I was chatting her up. And of course, I wasn't. Um, another thing, uh, on a plane one time, I wanted to have a chat to this woman who just, she was crying actually, and I wanted to ask her if she was okay. But then I just thought, no, I'm, I'm male now. I, I simply can't do this anymore. And that thing of being amongst the company of women and being open and friendly in the company of women, you just can't do as a male. So I'd gone from this rich tapestry of conversation to standing at a party with four men, the first party I went to after I'd started my transition, and we were all standing around with our beers, and one guy said to me, so, uh, what sort of car do you drive? <laughs> <laughs> and it was at, just at that moment I thought, hmm, have I done the right thing? <laughs> but it's okay, I have. All I can say is that if, if I could choose... You know, if I could choose, I would choose to be a woman. But the fact is, I'm not. Mm. So I have to make do with men. And I, <laughs> I try my best. You know, my, my, my partner will say, I am so much a stronger feminist now than I ever was when I was female-bodied. Because I truly see from the inside of manhood mm. the shit that women have to put up with. Yeah. <laughs> and the stuff that men say about women behind their backs. And it's just absolute crap. Mm. So men, if you're here... Just cut it out. Mm. Let's, let's all lift our game. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. That's it. Thank you. You've touched on something I think I want to come back to, that you know, when we put people in stupid limiting boxes, we lose the ability to use our skills. The story on the mm. person mm. crying on the plane is what got me mm. there. So we'll park that thought for a bit. But um, to our third and final um, panellist, yeah. Jordan, you've sort of, well, you know, Eddie's there, you're there, um, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, in your own words, go um, I think an interesting thing is, is often when, um, just, just picking up from when, when, you know, to talk about male privilege and female privilege, yeah. and I often say to people, have a chat to a trans man. 
and a trans man will tell you about all the things they have gained and all the, all the changes that they have, and, and you will believe them because they're a man. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, yeah. is, is that the trans women, we have a, a very similar you know, perspective. I, I have, and I also have the perspective of being young. Um, and being socialised What are you male. trying to say? No. <laughs> being, young, being young and being socialised male. Um, and how difficult that was for me. And yep. I think when we talk about the, the most toxic elements of feminism when it comes to trans um, things, that the, the criticisms, criticism, big criticisms seem to be, you are not a woman, you're a man, you have male privilege. Mm. You were brought up as a man and you have all that privilege. But I think... I think all children suffer under patriarchy, and I think um, the thing that um, most most children, um, ma- you know, male or, or socialised male children, suffer is, and I'm borrowing this um, phrase from Mr. Rogers um, from 1969, is that their feelings are not mentionable, and therefore they learn that they're not manageable, mm-hmm. um, and that was something that uh, that I experienced. Uh, as a young person, you know, I had um, this body that was becoming riddled with testosterone. I didn't know how to... It, it caused me dysphoria to even have mm. that kind of hormone in my body. I didn't know what that sensation was. I didn't know what the language was. And I was also told to hide all my feelings, mm. you know, and that my, my feelings weren't mentionable and I just had to manage them myself. Um, and it was very interesting for me. About a year ago, I was, I was staying with my parents and I was going out and I uh, was wearing a play suit, uh, relatively short, and my mum said, is that what you're wearing tonight? It's lovely, but be careful. And I thought, you had never had this kind of conversation with me before. Mm. And you should have. And it should have been, be responsible. You know, not be careful, be responsible. And I, I think responsible is a word... And I'm sorry, I'm just going to just talk and you, you, I'm going to go all over the place. Um, responsible is, is a word that I really hold on to because... I think we so often use shame as a motivator. And I hate shame. I live with shame so much mm. in my life. And I think it is a terrible feeling. And I think it is a terrible way to motivate people. And when speaking about privilege, um, we often attach uh, the, the concept of privilege to, to a feeling of guilt or shame. That some people, if you have privilege, you should feel guilty about it or, or ashamed. And I really want to press... If you have a privilege, you should feel responsible about that. It's not about feeling guilty. It's about realising what you have that other people don't and deciding whether that's fair or not. And if you decide that it's, it's not fair, then be responsible for making sure that other people either have that or be responsible for dismantling the structures that are in place that are giving you that advantage. And I think that sense of responsibility is what's important. And, you know, we talk about dismantling patriarchy and dismantling this paradigm and, and, and erecting something new, but I feel like what we erect is... I shouldn't say erect. Um, <laughs> what we build is a scaffold at mm. the moment. And I think with, you know, certain waves of feminism clashing with the waves that come after, it's, it's this feeling that we built a new monolith to replace the old monolith, but what you've actually built is a scaffold for the next generation to build their scaffold Mm -hmm. and for their next generation to build their scaffold. And maybe there's a new building underneath, but I think when we realise that what we are doing is we are creating new tools to create new things, to create new tools, that's progress and that's a progressive movement. And the second that we think that what we are built is it, then, then we're 
then we become conservative, yeah. <laughs> you know? And if we, if we don't listen, if we don't suddenly hear new voices that are coming in and hearing experiences um, and shutting it off, then, then we're not doing any good work. So I think, coming back to it, you know, the question, are, are transgender real women really women? It's a dumb question. It's boring. It's so boring. Like, I'm a person of unique experience. You know, I have seen... And felt things a lot of people don't get to feel. I know, I know for a fact, right, that getting hit in the balls hurts more than getting hit in the tits. (laughs) I I know that, right? How many people can actually compare the two? And I can tell you, like, it lingers, the ball. It really hurts with the boobs, but, you know. And so many things, and I think the thing that trans people can offer feminism is a perspective, and, and that perspective challenges a lot of thought that, you know, previously held thought. But cool. Challenge is great. Question everything. Like, nothing is fundamental. Everything should be questioned. And, and, and how fun, how fun it is to meet someone who's experienced different things. Like, how interesting is it? How fascinating. I love being transgender. You know, I love it. It's great. It was hard in the beginning because a lot of people, you know, they're living in a society that encouraged me to feel shame. But once I worked through that and found myself proud, it's bloody rad. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, thank you for coming because it's interesting. It's interesting. That's yeah. why right, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey at all about women, you know, and, well, to borrow from a reasonably good philosopher, um, you know, a guy, guy, guy called Batman, he was pretty, pretty good. <laughs> he often said um, to Robin that you should use your privilege for good and not evil purposes. Um, I think that was what he said anyway. But that's yeah, and point. atomic batteries to power turbines to speed as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to segue as we have a bit of interaction mm. between the crew. Jordan, you touched on something that I think is dear to my heart, and that is trans awesomeness. And yeah. just a little mention before I forget, March 31st is Trans Day of Visibility. Mm. Sometimes I like to call it Trans Awesomeness Day. You know, so <laughs> make sure you put something on your Facebook or Twitter or if you've got an organisation, discuss trans issues, trans and gender diverse issues there. But I want to bounce that around. What? Let's keep it going. The awesomeness of being trans or mm-hmm. gender diverse. You've t- started it. Let's keep it rolling. I think one of the things I really love is I came out really young. So I came out when I was 15. Um, so I have lived the majority of my life as an out gender non-conforming person. Um, I would say I'm genderqueer. I would say I'm trans. Like big, big brushstroke words. Um, but as someone who doesn't fit comfortably like on one side of the binary or the other, it is very hard. But the awesome thing is that so many people then come to you and say, Maybe I don't fit either. Mm. It gives them a permission, even like the blokiest of blokes, when they've had a couple of drinks, to come and say, it's all a bit bullshit, you know, or to, to cry and talk about their feelings and say, actually, I don't like this. I don't like this toxic masculinity. I don't like what it does to me. I don't like what it does to my friends. How can I be a better man? How can I be a better feminist? Um, Sometimes it feels like you're someone's gender confessional box. Like, I cannot go to a party without this happening. Like, ever. Just, and, but I think it's everywhere. I think we have a huge amount of anxiety about what it is to be a man or a woman. Again, I feel a lot of the time people treat me as a gender failure to take Ray Spoon's sort of phrase. It's like, if you're not doing one or the other, you're just in this kind of hinterland of 
oh, you know, sort of just rubbish and outcast and, and sort of... But it's, it's great there. There's so much freedom there and there are so many amazing people there. And then you meet people who kind of go like, can I, can I come in? Just like mm. a little bit for the evening maybe. Mm. Um, and I think there's some incredible research coming out, uh, I think of Tel Aviv University, uh, and some of it sort of looking at people's internal feelings of gender as opposed to how they sort of walk around the world. And some of this research is showing that the majority of people, when you ask them deep down, do you really know what it is to be a man? Do you really know what it is to be a woman? They're going, actually, no, I don't. Mm. Um, and maybe we could have a, a freedom... To, to question these things and move beyond that. Um, so I think that's my incredible privilege as a genderqueer person is to get to watch people question those things and say, you know, so many, again, maybe a generational thing, I'm so lucky to have so many men in my life who grew up as feminists, who grew up with their mothers as their heroes and their sisters as their heroes. Um, and they do talk about their feelings and they talk about toxic masculinity and they acknowledge their privilege and they are using their privilege in the workspace to bring in feminist programs. Um, and these guys are happy to, to come and start dismantling patriarchy and I get to watch them do it and it's really inspiring. So mm. that's one of my favorite things. Mm. Yeah, thank Tara Sagan, you mentioned the confessional. Thank you, Reverend Sayen. But Eddie, Yeah, look, I'm... I, I think a, a couple of things. First of all, I, I think one thing about being trans is that it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, it's almost like a sort of truth elixir for relationships. Mm -hmm. That um, I've lost so many friends um, oh. from being trans. You know, I've, I've lost relationships. I've lost a single member of my family, but it was a bit dodgy in the first place. Um, <laughs> but I think... Um, from being trans, I think, for me, it's the equivalent to being really true to yourself in a, such a powerful way. You can't be a bit trans. Mm -hmm. you, know, you are trans or you're not. Yeah. And um, I think having that power in your life and then making that statement, it then opens you up. And then, for me, it's followed that my relationships have been just so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, an, an incredible gift, actually, to be able to have that kind of um, uh, level of uh, challenge, you know, because it is obviously a hugely challenging thing. You know, I, I think uh, probably it's, it's rare the transgender person who hasn't thought about killing themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, really rare, and 41% of us do try and kill ourselves mm. um, here in Australia. Mm. Is, is that correct, Sally? And yeah. the last yeah. research we had, trans pathways, 14 to 25-year-olds, 48% had attempted it already, and I, I would, of course, please call a service like QLife or Lifeline yeah. if that is distressing, or talk to someone about it. But, yeah, it's a worry, and yet, as you say, we've got so much to offer, yet this is what happens. Yeah. yeah. So... You know, it's a great gift. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's a curse, but it's, um, it's certainly the biggest challenge that I can imagine uh, getting over in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's um, got so many, so many wonderful things have happened from it. So, yeah, trans yeah. awesome, definitely. <laughs> yeah. You just want to bounce off Yeah, I'll just bounce off that. Yeah, yeah I'd like, I think... Um, Oh, I had something to bounce off, and then I've forgotten what it was. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, boing and fall on the ground. Um, but I, I think um, it, it is—it's great. I mean, for me, it was all—you know—getting to the point where I'm just like, all right, I'm a woman. 
how do I do this? What's the rules? How do I how do I do this? Who do I have to talk to? And then you know, following the rules, you know, and then getting to a point where it's like, oh, hang on, I don't need any of these rules. Mm. And for me, when I came out publicly, um, I wanted to I wanted to come out in a way that rep- represented me, and I wanted to challenge a lot of uh, preconceptions about being transgender. Um, and it was I came out shortly after Caitlyn Jenner, and I thought I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's what do you say about Caitlyn Jenner that you don't like? Come on. So for, for, I mean, Kate, the way Caitlyn came out was her story, and that was, yeah. that was cool, and that was Caitlyn Jenner. But for, for Caitlyn, I felt like she did her like, last interview, um, did you know, a nice you know, think piece, really interesting, and then disappeared, and then came back on the cover of a magazine in her undies. And I was like, with a different name and a different, almost a different personality. And, I, and for me, I was like, I want to show continuity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to show that... Um, I'm, I'm still me, and I'm just letting mm. you, in, you in on a, a little part mm. of me. I don't want to reinvent myself. Yeah. I love that's very common, isn't yeah. it? That um, people sort of think that I'm two different people. No, and, and so that's why I kept my yeah. name. You know, I kept my mm. name the same. Yeah. I sing with the same voice. I mean, singing yeah. for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm a tenor, baritone, yeah. and a part of that was like, how do I sing as a woman? And you know, how do I sing with a woman's voice? And I was like. Well, I'm a woman. It's my voice, yeah. you know. And it can. These are the notes. It's an instrument. Yeah. And these are the notes I can hit, and I'm blessed to have this instrument. Yeah. Why would I want to cut this out of my singing range just to convince other people? Yeah. Um, when the only person that I need to convince about anything is myself, mm-hmm. and um, and so that was that was the thing. The story of continuity for me, um, and then the number of emails I get from people and from parents thanking me for that. Mm-hmm. You know, someone, you know, email yesterday saying, my daughter is trans. She didn't know she could do it like you. Mm-hmm. She thought she had to start all over again and reinvent mm-hmm. and stop, look, stop playing video games, you know, and she had to start fitting into this thing and, mm-hmm. you know, and she, she sees me on there and, I, you know, I'm, I'm still a gamer and I'm still a massive nerd and I still like all the same things I liked mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's awesome that you could do that for that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, it's yeah. such a privilege to have that effect on people and... Um, and it's and it's sad that that story hadn't been told beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm so pleased to be a part of the, this this society now, and to be helping these kids. Because for me, the only thing I saw on TV was Jerry Springer. Mm. You know, the <laughs> only trans woman I ever saw was a sad woman who had tricked a man and was getting her wig pulled off on television. And that's and that's all I saw. And I'm like, well, that life is is that what I want? Mm. But now there are so many stories and different stories and different trans narratives and different ways to just be yourself and be queer and it's it's great and it's it's so great to be amongst it mm. as it's as it's happening. Mm. Yeah, I think I want to focus on that. You know, I acknowledge my privilege as someone of white and relatively mm. white Anglo-Saxon middle-class background, and we do need more trans and gender-diverse stories of multicultural, mm. original inhabitants, multi-faith. All those sorts of things. I just had one question to clarify. You said there was a gender rule book. What? 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 Where? What was the link to it online? I didn't find it. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I wanted to touch on something else and see. And you started this when you opened, and that is how. You know, let's drill in a little more. How can we make fem- feminism more inclusive and keep building that scaffold and keep making a better scaffold and a better building and, well, paint the inside of the house if you want to be really decorative? Mm-hmm. How do we keep doing it? I'd like to get everyone's thoughts on I that. I really love what Jordan was saying about shame. And I think shame is such a big problem for us. Like, you know, I know that Eddie works as a teacher. I work as a teacher as well. And we have such an idea of shame around being wrong or shame about doing the wrong mm-hmm. answer or shame about trying 
it out in case it all goes wrong. Um, and I see a lot of people who then their shame turns into anger and then it starts hitting out at other people, um, particularly around gender again, especially if there's a way that we can break down gender, there's one way. And, and some people will say we need to end gender in this way and any other way of doing it is wrong and then there becomes this horrible way of interacting with each other where we're just putting our feelings onto each other and hurting each other over and over again. Um, so I think for me, one of the crucial things we have to do is learn how to be wrong mm -hmm. without then becoming so full of shame that we attack other people. Uh, a way of, again, acknowledging what we have. You know, I'm, I'm here on a speaking tour, um, not because I am you know, the best trans person from the UK, but I have a book deal, I, I'm white, I'm middle class, I've been to university for years and years and years because my parents could afford to do that for me. You know, this is not a question of me being the best person for the job. Uh, you know, I'm trying my best, um, you know, mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. Um, but hopefully if I can use this platform to, to start talking about the privileges that led there and beyond that to ask other people up on stage and make sure other people get speaking gigs and other people get jobs, mm. that's a way of, instead of using shame, yeah. hopefully using the responsibility instead. So I think mm. all of us could do that yeah. in each individual way. You know, we all have our struggles. We all have ways in which we are oppressed. I'm quite severely mentally ill and have been all my life, and that is a big mm. burden for me to carry. So mm. that's something I would love other people to learn more about and to afford me some of their responsibility, and in other ways, hopefully, I can give back. So it becomes collaborative. Uh, we're all using our skills. We're all using our advantages, and we're making sure that no one is disadvantaged at the end result. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. I think an, a thing that you, you've kind of reminded me of, um, you know, one of the, the things that the horrible people say is that... For, you know, Jordan, you're not a woman, you have male privilege. Mm. And then the discussion about male privilege within, within trans women gets completely shut down because it becomes, it becomes about defending your, your gender. Mm. But there are privileges that I have from being socialised male, mm. absolutely. And I doubt that if I transitioned earlier in my life, I would have the same career that I have now. And I was, I was fortunate enough to transition at a point in my life where I had a profile um, and, you know, I... I was doing a, you know, a radio interview and like, isn't it great that we've got a you know, famous transgender comedian? I'm like, no, no, it's great when, some, when someone starts from the bottom mm. in comedy as trans and, 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 and comes up. I've, I've, I've built that profile with male privilege mm. and taken a step to the side mm. and I, I acknowledge that. And, and again, it's not about shame and it's not, a, it's not an attack on my gender. My gender's 100%, I know what I am. Mm. But it's, it's going, I see that and I acknowledge it, and it's my responsibility to make space for other trans people, other women, people of colour, anyone in, in my field who is not um, as privileged as me. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's not, a, it's not talking about intersections of privilege. It's complicated. Mm. And I don't think the idea of male privilege is a def defined thing. You know, and I feel like you know, a, a woman whose name is Chris who sends an email and the other person thinks it's a boy, Chris, mm. has, is accessing privilege, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and it's, it's complicated. Um, one of the ways that I, I think would just be so quick and so simple to advance feminism, because feminism is basically about equality, isn't it, mm. is to get rid of uh, single-gender schools. Mm. I just can't stand single-gender yeah. schools. Yeah. Look, um, last yeah. year I was, I was teaching at uh, a single boys' school in uh, Toowoomba. Uh, Toowoomba is a, a well-known educational centre. This is up on the range. It's cooler than Brisbane. 
So uh, there's a bunch of fancy private schools there. So I was teaching, uh, uh, teaching cello there. May I say that the headmaster um, knew about me being trans. He was cool about it, but he did write to all the parents of the students that I was about to teach for the year and say, by the way, your new cello teacher is transgender. Do you have a problem with that? Without my position. So this is some of the shit that we have to put up with. I needed the gig, so I put up with it. Fortunately, I've left now uh, with a big... Um, um, No, not really. Um, Anyway, this particular school, it takes boys from kindergarten Mm. and some of these boys are going to the single gender school all the way up to grade 12 i would i was one of them i mean like i went i was at single boys school i just i just don't think that that should be allowed for um girls or boys or Mm. you know non-binary people Mm. i think that we are teaching our children the wrong things we are splitting society from the age of five Mm. And good on you for surviving that, Jordan, because, I mean, that's, I think yeah. that's a nightmare. It was, it was hard. Mm. It was hard because yeah. it, it's not, not fitting in, in that world, but also yeah. that world feeling wrong and not knowing... Um, but, and, then, and not having any relationships with women. Like, not, yeah. having, not meeting girls um, until being 16 or 17. Yes, When your right. bodies are full of hormones... Yeah. And no one is teaching you, you know, in, yeah. in a male, male place, no one is teaching you how to handle them. No one is actually saying, yeah. listen, your body is changing, it's wonderful, you're going to become strong, it's going to be great, and, but you know what, it's, you're going to want to fight, and you're going to want to fuck. Mm. And, that's, and that is, with, you know, now that my body is not testosterone dominant, you know, it, and, and I interact with those feelings differently now, mm. before, it's a really hard thing to deal with, yeah. you know, and no one actually says, it's hard, yeah. I'm here to help. You know, it's, it's mentionable and it's manageable, mm. but ultimately your body is your responsibility. Mm. And whether it is your nature, we as human beings overcome nature. That's what makes us humans. Buildings are not natural. Clothing's not natural. <laughs> Aeroplanes are not natural. Yeah. Human beings, by, by, our, by our nature, defy nature. Mm. So you need to defy those things that happen in your body that are antisocial. Mm. And we need to help, mm. you know, because... Boys only learn from other boys and they learn from role models in media. Mm. And because of the prudishness of mainstream media... Yeah, we're not doing so well in no, Australia, the only, sadly. Yeah. The only media they are consuming is um, not helping. Mm. Yeah. yeah, And I don't know if it's the same thing sort of in Australia as it is in the UK, but certainly the majority of our male politicians have been through this system. Mm. They've been in yeah. boarding schools since of the age of five and yeah. the age of 18, then they go to Oxford or Cambridge and they stay in all-male societies. Mm. And they don't just not have any female role models in school. They don't have any female friends in school. They don't have any female role models in the curriculum. They're not learning any works of women's history. They're not learning about women composers. They're not learning about women writers and scientists and artists. They, they grow up in a world where women are completely tangential. And for some of these guys, women are literally there just to get married to and have kids. And that's to, to continue the family name. Mm. And... I just thought I'd put that in there because I don't know if the situation is, is the same over here, but these are the people, these often, thinking of someone like Boris Johnson, uh, you know, representing mm. society on, mm. on a grand level, um, and they have been completely warped by... Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's similar. I'm not, not massively familiar with the, with the schooling of, of the politicians, but I, I would say that it's similar yeah. in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, then they go on perhaps into the business world and mm. regurgitate the same structures because they haven't mm. seen anything and no. all those sorts of things. And so, yeah, 
diversity. Breathe it in and keep it rolling. Yeah. And it is another aspect of trans life which I feel doesn't get talked about a lot by the mainstream is that we do have these conversations with each other. Mm. It's kind of amazing when we're all coming from different gendered backgrounds and moving into new gendered spaces. There's so much opportunity for us to say, hey, was that similar for you? Was that right. different for you? And How it, did that and it is like being unplugged from the Matrix as yeah, well. Yeah, completely. Like, and, and the fact that that movie was made by two trans women <laughs> and, yeah. and having yes. watched it you know, as a kid and watching it recently, oh, I'm like, oh, this is such a trans movie. <laughs> <laughs> and even that big dance scene in the second movie I didn't understand. I'm like, oh, no. this is such a queer dance party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm just going to quickly ask, um, because you've touched on this brilliantly, you know, and you touched on it too, Sam, but let's get a few more awesome trans people. You've just mentioned Lil- Lily and Lana Wachowski. Last night we were discussing Lynn Conway, who's in mm. today's language would be an IT geek. We would not have those yeah. smartphones that we can get our calendars, our emails, and look at pictures of crazy cats without her. Mm-hmm. Hit, hit your search engine, which became because of her. But let's throw some more in just from other oh, fields God, where okay. you've been inspired. People, people in the past who are on my, like, oh, my God, I love them so much. Leslie Feinberg, please come... Leslie Feinberg, everyone loves here, please. Yeah, yeah. because, mm-hmm. oh my God. So she or here or he, depending on context, just this incredible intersectional activist. And if you haven't read Stonebridge Blues, it's available for free online and it is one of the best books ever written. So just get it in your brain right now. Um, I think Wendy Carlos is a big deal for me. Mm. You know, sort of a trans woman composer who was completely at the cutting edge of contemporary mm. classical music. Um, someone like Anoni is just incredible. Mm. You know, she's, she's one of the Mercury Music Awards. You know, she was nominated for an Oscar, and we don't talk about just how epic she is, you know, as this feminist environmental activist. Um, yeah, I mean, there are so many, and I, I get to work, you know, as, as a trans artist. Um, you know, you do these shows, and you're backstage, and you're surrounded by such talent that's been forged in such a hard way, and people have taken those ingredients and turned it into something beautiful that they can share with the audience, and you just think, oh my God, I am so lucky. You know, I never thought when I was, again, I remember being 15 and realizing I was trans and the first thought being, oh, shit, you know, I'm never going to have a career. I'm never going to be happy. And then you're backstage listening to performance poets and, uh, you know, singers and filmmakers talk about their craft and about their activism. And you think this is bliss. Mm. You know, Mm. how did I not know how good this could be? Mm. I would go uh, slightly the other way and... uh, uh, talk about some of my mates here in Australia who are transgender, who um, go about their business. You know, they, they haven't written books, they don't appear on stage, they don't do TV, they do their work, they support society, and they are awesome people. They're mental health workers, they're psychologists, they're emergency nurses. And, you know, there are so many amazing trans people who transition and they get on with their lives. Mm. And I think that they're incredibly important. You know, that we have the, the more well-known trans people, but I think those everyday... Everyday visibility is so important. Mm. Yeah. Incredibly important. That they're open, but they don't sort of um, feel like they need to sort of court publicity in any way. Mm. Um, I, I want to just give a shout-out to trans women in sport as well. Oh, yeah. I think it is such... Such a hard topic for people to digest, you know, that a trans woman can compete in, in sport. Um, mm. And there's such bravery being in that space. I mean, I, I play roller derby and I love it. And I'm so fortunate that it is a sport that doesn't scrutinise me and, 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 and celebrates me and celebrates what my body can do. And, you know, 
if, if I have you know, a, an advantage in sport, it is not medical uh, or physical after this much estrogen. Um, it's social. It's the fact that I went to an all-boys school and I played rugby for 12 years. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I was taught that my body was strong at a young age. And, I was, I, and um, you know, seeing, seeing women that I play with, discovering that their bodies are stronger than they've been led to believe mm-hmm. their whole lives. And playing contact sport and getting hit by me and I weigh 105 kilos. <laughs> I'm on roller skates and I hit you, it hurts. <laughs> but, um, and then standing up, standing up and getting like, that was great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so the people out there that, that are, are being in sport and being screwed, you know, Hannah Mount, Mounsey in the, uh, the AFL recently, um, Renee Richards, uh, Fallon Fox, you know, tra- trans women being out there, being in sport, competing, um, and dealing with the sports culture, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, quite toxic. Yeah. And so I, I, yeah, really, yeah, sports people. Yeah, good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also a plug to... Martine Delaney, a trans woman who um, was playing soccer as a female in Tasmania in 2005, a bit of a pioneer. Mm. So we're at that point where we'll call for questions and we've got two microphones. We've got a number one up there and a number two up there, but we don't have a bronze medalist over there with a number three. (laughs) We're going to be sporty. Um, Just so if you can make your way over to the microphone if you've got a question um, and we'll take them. And just while people are... A couple of things. I know sometimes people get a bit nervous about asking questions about trans. I know it's a nice space, but if you're a bit nervous, just say something like, look, I've got a question and I'm not sure how to ask it and that sort of thing. We will throw you in that. Because you can bet in a space of, what have we got, a couple of hundred people, you bet about a hundred have the same question. Totally. And well, it's like Sian was saying, that, like the, the fear of... Making a mistake and the shame that comes with it, with it is, is holding us back. Mm. Yeah, Fail- mm. failure is okay because how, how the hell else are you going to learn? What is it? Success isn't a straight line. It's mm-hmm. yeah. out there. Like, so um, please ask questions and also just while we've got people queuing up, and we are getting nice. There, um, just a quick mention of a resource which helps break down gender, which I like. Um, it's called the Gender Unicorn. Have a search for it. And it's very important because it proves unicorns do exist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we've got a few people queuing at number one and I think I can see people queuing at number two, so we'll alternate. And the person in the black top got up there first, so throw it at us. Hi, um, just a question relating to what Eddie was speaking about of um, our schooling system and the way that we have single-sex schools. Or, and I kind of wanted to explore if it's maybe more a question of not... Um, putting like uh, privilege together, so people um, with privilege not being sim- sim- only limited to being with people of the same privilege, or how we kind of explore that in the schooling system. Yeah. Oh. I mean, if you would allow, I think maybe I don't know if this is a a different viewpoint to that, but uh, in the UK, single sex, single sex schools are still really prevalent, so I was sent to a single-sex girls' school, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life, and I was very lucky to escape without committing suicide. Um, it was not in any way supportive. Um, the most toxic elements of what girls are taught they should be was what reigned uh, among the teaching staff and among the pupils. So girls, I mean, would be... I mean, the, the bullying was so endemic and it was based on sort of very gender-related bounds of sort of gossiping, uh, backstabbing, ostracization. So you could go a whole year without speaking to someone else and just seeing your name being scrolled on blackboards with, you know, Sienna's a freak, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. The staff played into a girls will be girls idea and it was 
so very much like this was normal, this was how girls socialized, this is how they should be left to, to interact with each other. Um, so we had so many suicide attempts, we had so much um, pain and suffering, eating disorders, um, sort of people leaving school halfway through. It really left me with a If sensation. you don't mind me saying, Tian, and that, yeah. that sounds like a shocking school. It's really it well really rated. It really does. Mm. It's yeah. really well rated, and yeah. a lot of schools in London are like this. And mm. when I talk to people throughout the UK who've been to these top private schools, which are single sex, it's exactly the same. Yeah. There used to be weekly weigh-ins at St. Paul's Girls' School because, wow. yeah, this is not... These are not bad schools. These are considered extremely yeah. good schools. They get great league table results, and they have a lot of people who go on to achieve great things. Mm. But we went on to achieve great things. We were... It was awful, mm -hmm. and the school culture is changing, but it really brought it home to me that it wasn't a question... You couldn't make a feminist school just by making it single sex. Mm. You had to make it feminist by making it explicitly feminist, and this school yeah. was racist, it was classist, and it was just toxic for all the people that went there. Um, so I, I think... <laughs> forgive me for being very passionate. I'm really glad that you had such an amazing experience. And I, I want kids to have that experience. I want girls in particular to grow up feeling that they have everything at their feet and they never have a single barrier in front of them. But I think that has to be a deliberate way of crafting a curriculum yeah. and a school culture. There's a school, there's a school in Melbourne, Cary, I think it is. I think it's Cary, that um, girls and boys go to the school but they actually are in class separately, which is, is maybe one option. Apparently, it's, it's really quite successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's yeah. something interesting in educational sort of training and classrooms. You can do an awful lot in terms of how you pick students. Um, so I don't know, there was a, a really nice report that came out in higher education. If you're doing a seminar group and the first person you choose to speak is female, uh, then usually you get a really good gender balance. If you mm -hmm. pick a man to speak first, uh, usually the gender balance drops completely. Mm. So there's a lot of emerging material in educational psychology about group dynamics and gendered spaces mm. and how we can make more space for women totally. to be heard. Because boys learn to take space. Yes. yes. Boys learn. That's right. And, 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 yeah. and women learn to yield it. And yeah. it is about yeah. having the structure and yeah. to change that, dynamic. change that dynamic. Yeah. yeah, and I think having uh, single-sex schools, it's just not helping anyone. You know, it's, I, I don't think it's particularly helping women because then women then have to go into the world where, you know, at least half of people are blokes and they haven't learned how to stand their ground. Yeah. I, and I think that's, you know, it's yep. perhaps not a very feminist thing to say, but right. I, I, I think it's the truth. And I went to an all-girls school, which was a great school. Mm. You know, it was an awesome school. Yeah. But I think having that balance as early as possible is really important. For another question. Right. We'd better rock it along because there's at least yeah. two more questions on number yeah. one. But, and yeah. I've got to go up to number two. I can't quite see if there's anyone actually wanting There is. Yeah. There is? Just over here. Oh, yeah. I was wondering, so gender identity is obviously very important to trans people and... But you also learn, say, in, like, Feminism 101 that gender is a social construct, quote-unquote. Mm. How do I reconcile those two, you know, facts? Is one of them wrong? Or, like, how do, how do I reconcile the idea of gender being something completely made up with, with gender identity and how important that is to trans people? I, th I think you answered your own question when you said that it's Feminism 101. Um, <laughs> that, you know, a lot of people, you know, say when they criticise me online, it's like, you know, it's basic biology. And I'm like, well... 
Yeah, but that's because you've learned it at the basic level, you mm-hmm. know. Biology is complicated, feminism complicated. It is so much more complicated than 101, and it's so much more complicated than the biology you learned in high school. Um, so I, I think it is, it's about just going, well, this is, you know, feminism 101 is the, the, the baby blocks, mm-hmm. and it's complicated and just accept it's complex and, um, and dive in. Yeah. And saying, you know, social construct doesn't mean made up. It's such, a, it's such a common misconception of what a social construct is. Being human is a social construct. We are born, all human infants are born premature. This is one of the most incredible aspects mm. of the human psychological development. We are social creatures. Our brains do not finish developing. Everything we know about language, selfhood, the fact that we can say selfhood, it's completely made up. But it's real. Mm. And this is the thing. I don't have a gender identity like I put in a box and I take out. That's my sort of made-up thing that, that I believe in. I have a gender. And that is crafted through my body and my experiences and, and all the different shifting ways that I as an individual interact with society and society has interacted with me. And I would say all of us have that. All of us have this history of who we are and how people have treated us. Um, and a lot of that is bullshit. And hopefully we're all unpicking that bullshit. And some of it might end up being quite positive and, and quite enriching. Um, but until we get past this idea that social construct means fake mm. and that trans people have a gender identity and cis people don't, we're going to be really stuck at the one-on-one yeah. level. We're close to our time. So yeah. I just want to check. We've got one more question up at number two and another one at number one. So we'll do a quick... We'll have to do real dot points um, and then... So number two, microphone first, number one, then we'll wrap it up. I can be super quick. Mm -hmm. Um, Just thinking again about sort of the division and apartheid of space according to lines of gender. When we think about the unconscious bias that's implicated through things like the division of public space, when we think Mm -hmm. about the assumptions we make by the simple gender division of toilets or public bathrooms, you know, Mm -hmm. how do we actually create a language or advocate for more gender expansive ways of thinking through public space and how we determine safe spaces. Just get rid of um, single-sex public bathrooms. And teach boys not to piss on the toilet. Yeah. It's it's so simple. I I teach at a state school, a a, a primary school in uh, Brisbane. It's a wonderful school. State school. They've got a new building. They've got a whole bunch of loos. And each one is just an individual loo. It's super simple. A boy goes in, a girl goes in. Yep. And that's it. You know, it's not much to change. It's like a duh question. Mm-hmm. Right. And the last question down at number one. Um, I'm a very junior employment lawyer and I have the great um, challenge and privilege of creating certain policies and um, workplace handbooks and enterprise agreements that um, encompass the whole spectrum of gender. And um, as a younger person in my organisation, I arguably have... Uh, a more open mind, and it's the concept is not something that I've ever questioned. It's just this is how humans are. Um, but the thing that's always fascinated me, and the thing that we have to do a lot of work around, is the linguistics of of the gender spectrum. And I think in English it's a little bit easier. I also speak French, and I'm I've always wondered. I've never been in the situation where I've had to to use it, but in these languages, which you know, and we know that language is at the root mm. of culture. How is language evolving from gendered languages to encompass people who don't identify with gender? Mm. Um, in French in particular, some people are using il, I-L-E. Uh, some people use elle, il, back, they, they 
sort of go backwards and forwards. I think in Portuguese, there's a lot of moving backwards and forwards. When I was doing some work over in Spain, um, people would, I think you see people adding X to the end rather than an O or an A. Um, so I think it is all there. Just ask people. Like, yeah. honestly, there are genderqueer activists everywhere. Totally, and it's, it's one of those things is you, you, you create and discover language. You know, yeah. you, you go, yeah. here is a concept. Yeah. We've got the concept. It needs a word. And, and you give it a word and then you share that word around. And language is a, is, is a privilege. And if you've got those words, you have a responsibility to share them. Mm. And then uh, hopefully we can practice them as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I'll just throw something in there. It came up in my social media this morning. Great telepathy. Someone of Jewish background. Yes, I went through a bar mitzvah at a progressive, um, inclusive LGBTI synagogue. I finally at 48 had a bus mitzvah. And this morning in my social media... Came, there's a gender-neutral equivalent of a benign mitzvah, and I'm just sitting there going, look, I am. (laughs) (laughs) We can keep inventing. We've got to wrap it up. Please give the hugest appreciation to our amazing panel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Sally Goldner. She was with Eddie Ayres, Jordan Raskopoulos and C.N. Lester at All About Women 2018. And more from the festival is hitting your podcast feed next week, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll catch you next week.